Hi everyone, welcome back once again to Daily Gospel Exegesis, where we try to do really solid exegesis of the Gospel text to help you understand maybe some things that you might have missed if you just uh, skim read the text. We want to really dive into the very text of the Gospels. And today, if you go to Mass, you would hear from Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. Jesus got into the boat, crossed the water, and came to his own town. Then some people appeared, bringing him a paralytic stretched out on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Courage, my child, your sins are forgiven. And at this, some scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Knowing what was in their minds, Jesus said, Why do you have such wicked thoughts in your, heart, in your hearts? Now, which of these is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. But to prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up and pick up your bed and go off home. And the man got up and went home. A feeling of awe came over the crowd when they saw this, and they praised God for giving such power to men. So what's the context here? Jesus has been doing various healings in the Galilee region. And on the previous day, he had crossed to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee to heal the demoniac. That's at the end of Matthew chapter 8. And now Jesus gets back into the boat in verse 1, crosses the water and came to his own town. So he gets back in the boat on the western shore, sorry, on the eastern shore and goes back across to the western shore where his hometown of Capernaum is. That's basically where he lives for the first few years of his ministry. So he's going home, back to Capernaum. He probably went into his own house, or certainly he went to Peter's house, according to Mark's version. And there's a question about whether Jesus may have actually lived in Peter's house or whether he had his own. But Mark's version of this story says, at this point, so many people collected in the house that there was no room left, even in the front door. So... They're in Simon's house and there's people everywhere. There's people crowding to get to Jesus and there's no room. Verse 2, our translation in the lectionary says, Then some people appeared. Now, the original here just says, Behold, they brought him a paralytic. So it's just some people from the crowd, apparently. The cause of his condition is not described here, although apparently the paralytic has been paralyzed since birth. It seems that way. Verse 2, Seeing their faith... Now, what about this is faithful? Well, Mark actually gives us this detail. In Mark's version, we see the friends carrying the paralytic believe in Jesus so much, they have so much faith in him, that they actually were willing to go to the lengths of opening up a hole in the roof and lowering him down through the roof. So you probably know that story. This is the same story, but Matthew doesn't include the details about making the hole in the roof. But it's the same story. So Jesus sees their faith and help far they're willing to go to get this man to Jesus. So he says to the paralytic, courage, my child, or more literally there, take heart, my son. Now that phrase, my son or my child, that could imply the paralytic was a young man. Not necessarily though, it could just be an affirmation of Jesus' deity, my son. He's sort of in the position of God here, perhaps. And maybe it's just a tender phrase. He's showing tenderness to the man. And then he says these controversial words, which have echoed through the centuries. He says to the man, 
your sins are forgiven. Now, this was a bombshell to his original Jewish hearers. The Jews believed that only God could forgive sins, and that was taught in the Old Testament in lots of places, particularly Psalm 103, verse 12, Isaiah 43, verse 25. The Old Testament is very clear that only God could forgive sins. Even if you go to the temple to get your sins forgiven, it's not the priests that would do it. It was God. But here Jesus just says, your sins are forgiven. So this is interpreted as blasphemy because he's basically claiming to be God. Now, we as Christians know that Jesus is God, so it doesn't count as blasphemy. But of course, Jesus Jesus never comes right out and says, I am God. So the scribes and the other hearers in the crowd don't realize that he's God. So they see it as blasphemy. Now, many scholars have pointed out that notice Jesus hasn't even healed the man first. He just starts talking about the man's sins. Why focus on the man's sins rather than his physical healing? Well, it seems that Jesus always wants to go to the root problems in our hearts and deal with the more serious paralysis of sin rather than physical maladies. So here, Jesus sees into the man's heart. He sees that the man has some sin in his life and he releases him from a burden of guilt that he had borne possibly for years. So in this story... The healing of the man's sin is the precondition to the healing of his physical handicap. Verse 3, some scribes, so these are the teachers of the law. So their job was to interpret the Old Testament for the Jewish community. And at this stage, they're probably here to see Jesus, or they're here to hear Jesus. At this point, they're not openly hostile to him. They're genuinely interested in his teachings, his interpretation of the Old Testament, because that's what they specialized in. So they come to the house of Peter where everyone's crowded. They want to hear Jesus too. But as soon as Jesus says, your sins are forgiven to the man, the scribes say to themselves, now Mark's translation makes it clear that they don't actually say anything. They're actually thinking it internally. And this is what they think to themselves. This man is blaspheming because from their perspective, Jesus is claiming to be able to forgive sins. And they know that only God can do that. In fact, even to forgive sins. You had to go to the temple, whereas Jesus is out here just in someone's house and he apparently claims that the man's sins are forgiven. So there's this element of Jesus getting rid of the old covenant here and the way that it used to work for forgiveness of sins. Jesus is introducing a new way of forgiving sins. So in in summary here, what they notice is that Jesus is putting himself on par with the Father and he's bestowing on this man the forgiveness of sins that's normally only associated with the temple system. So they're thinking this man is blaspheming, but Jesus knows what's in their minds, or more literally, he knows their thoughts. So Jesus reads the minds of the scribes here. That's fascinating. He does do this every now and then, where he reads the minds of those around him, but he only does it sometimes. And this is what he says to them. Why do you have such wicked thoughts in your hearts? So Jesus perceives not only what their thoughts are, but he actually comes right out and says their thoughts are wicked. Why are their thoughts wicked? Well, it's not entirely clear, but probably because they deny the truth that Jesus has authority from God to forgive sins. Verse 5, Jesus now says to the scribes, after having said their thoughts are wicked, Now, which of these is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? So this is a teaching moment. Jesus is asking them a rhetorical question. 
The answer is supposed to be obvious. The answer to the question is supposed to be that saying that your sins are forgiven is the much easier thing to do than actually telling a paralyzed man to get up and walk. And so the idea here is that from their perspective, the scribe's perspective, it's much more likely that the man's sins would be forgiven, or at least to say that his sins are forgiven, than for the man to get up and walk. But if that's the case, if saying the man's sins are forgiven is the easier option, Jesus is about to show that he has the power to do the harder one, which is to uh, give the man his physical walking ability back. But if he can do the harder one, then he's also in that same moment going to show that he has the power to do the easier one as well. You notice how that works? He says, which is easier? And they would have said to themselves, well, saying the man's sins are forgiven are easier. And so Jesus says, well, I'm going to do the harder one, which will prove that I can do the easier one too. Notice the language he uses here is, I want to prove to you. Now, that's a key phrase. In the Old Testament, God often works a miracle, not always, but sometimes so that the people will know that he's God as a kind of a proof thing, though that has to be held in balance because there's other places in the Gospels where Jesus specifically says, I'm not going to perform a miracle for you because that would be too easy. Now, in this case, he uses this title, the Son of Man. Now, that's a very mysterious messianic title. Son of Man appears a few times in the Old Testament, but it's particularly in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 8 predicts that there's, in one of Daniel's visions, there's this human messenger from heaven that's going to come one day, sent from God to the earth. And in Daniel chapter 8, that figure is called the Son of Man. Now, in the original context, the Son of Man probably represented the people of God, perhaps, but in the time of Jesus, the Jews had come to see the Son of Man as a title for the Messiah. So, Son of Man basically means Messiah. That's the title Jesus uses for himself. So, as uh, people who are interested in learning and studying the Gospels, whenever Jesus says the Son of Man, blah, 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 he means the Messiah. And he's calling himself the Messiah, essentially, although they don't always fully perceive that, or they don't always fully agree with him. And this is what he says about the, the Messiah, the Son of Man. I'm doing this to prove to you the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he wants to show the scribes and the crowd that the, one of the things the Messiah can do is to forgive sins. They didn't really realize that. When they studied the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of things the Messiah can do that are predicted, but it doesn't clearly predict that the Messiah can forgive sins. But Jesus wants to show them that. Notice the language he uses. He doesn't say, son of man has authority to forgive sins. He adds in a phrase on earth. The son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This phrase is really important for Catholic theology. Let's think about what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is affirming that God is the only one who can forgive sins in heaven, but he's telling them something new has happened. God has delegated his authority to forgive sins to the Messiah while the Messiah is on earth. Interesting. The Messiah has authority on earth to forgive sins. That same authority is what's passed on to the apostles later, the authority to forgive sins on earth. Because later, Jesus says to them, whatever sins you forgive are forgiven, whatever sins you retain are retained. So Jesus passes on his own authority to forgive sins on earth to the apostles, and as Catholics, we believe that's the the basis for the sacrament of confession, which is passed down to the bishops and the priests today. 
We'll talk more about that when we get to verse 8, because the crowd, and maybe perhaps Matthew, realises the significance of the fact that now people on earth have the ability to forgive sins. Jesus finishes by saying, "And get up, pick up your bed and go home. And that's what the man does. He gets up and goes straight away. Notice Jesus didn't touch him here, apparently. It was just the word of Jesus himself. That's what heals the man. So the man gets up and he goes home. And imagine you're in the crowd. That would be quite amazing to see. Probably most of the people here listening to Jesus are locals. They knew this paralyzed man. And they probably knew he'd been paralyzed his whole life. All of a sudden, he gets up and walks out. So this is their reaction. Verse 8. A feeling of awe came over the crowd when they saw this. And they praised God for giving such power to men. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, everyone is still very positive about Jesus. And in fact, when they see these miracles, they glorify God, which is an excellent outcome. Now, they probably don't recognize him as the son of God. They probably don't, at least this crowd, don't seem to recognize that he's the Messiah. But they do recognize here, according to Matthew, that God has given power to this man. Soon, though, as we know, if you read on, the scribes begin to develop a grudge against Jesus. At this point, it's all pretty positive, but later on, for different reasons, the scribes start to be quite hostile to Jesus. Notice the language that's used here. When the crowd saw this, they praised God for giving such power to men. Some scholars have pointed out that the crowd here apparently doesn't think only, wow, God has given power to this man, Jesus. They say God has given power to men. Perhaps this is a hint that at the time Matthew was writing, it was well known that the apostles were also associated with the ministry of forgiving sins, men in the plural. And so Matthew's audience would know that this authority to forgive sins had passed to the apostles as well. That might be what's in view here. Really interesting. So we'll leave it there for today. There's no catechism references for us to look at today, but we'll continue to work through the Gospel of Matthew, this fascinating, very Jewish gospel, in tomorrow's episode.